Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And this morning we'll be looking at verse 3 and 4 primarily. But I'll begin reading in verse 1 just to remind you of the context. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, start reading in verse 1. And as always, it's our great privilege to read the inspired Word of God. It's given to us for God's glory and for the building up of His church. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, so the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 3, that the day of the Lord will not come. The day of the Lord, I understand, to be the second coming of Jesus Christ when the church is raptured up to meet Him in the air. You have the resurrection of the dead first. That's the second coming of Christ. That's the day of the Lord. But that will not occur until two very important signs occur first. The first is the apostasy that we looked at last time. And now we're going to look at the second event that must take place prior to the day of the Lord coming, and that is the man of lawlessness who is revealed, the son of destruction. And then also in verse 4, as he is described. So these are the two major events that will occur before the second coming of Christ. He gives that to the church so they can be watchful And they can be informed and know when the day of the Lord is drawing near. So that's why the Lord, that's why the Apostle Paul is uh, teaching these things to the church so they can be informed. Now, this uh, this man of lawlessness that's uh, presented here in verse three is by many considered the same as the Antichrist that John mentions in his letters, his epistles. And also connected to, if not the same person as the beast of Revelation chapter 13 and following. He's also the one who is prophesied in the book of Daniel and who performs the abomination of desolation. Now there's many different ways to interpret these uh, prophetic words. And, and I realize that within a group this large, there are many different convictions on eschatology, many different views. So if you hold to a view that's different than mine, my intent is really not to give you a headache or to cause your stomach to be upset. 
So I would just encourage you to take a couple of aspirin, maybe a little Pepto-Bismol, and pray for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm sharing with you what my convictions of this have been. I've been studying prophecy since 1972. So that's, uh, that's a long time. And, and I should have all this figured out by now, but I certainly do not. But certain aspects of this, I, I do have strong convictions on. And so I'm going to share with you what I think is the best way to interpret uh, this particular passage. Now, in general, when you approach prophecy, there's basically three different approaches. The first one is the preterist position that says that basically all of this has already been fulfilled at 70 AD. Uh, Nero Caesar is the beast, and so they put everything back in 70 AD. The second approach is the historicist approach. Now basically, these signs are just prevalent throughout the church age. Definitely Christ will come back, but a lot of these signs are just with us and they're throughout the whole church age. The third approach is a futurist approach that says that all of this, all of it is, is forward. It's all dealing with the second coming of Christ. Now, I personally think that all three of those approaches have validity. I think all of them have something to contribute to our understanding of Scripture. For example, Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed in Matthew 24. Clearly, that's got to be a part of that passage. Uh, the destruction of the temple that occurred at 70 A.D. Uh, there's also aspects where some of these things, they do exist throughout the whole church age. As we'll see probably next week when we look at First John, uh, there are already many antichrists. There have been antichrists since the first century. So the, the issue of, of the spirit of antichrist has been throughout the whole age. And so there's certainly aspects of that. R- Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, these things have been with us. Uh, Apostasy has been with us throughout the whole age. So there is an aspect of truth in that as well. But also there is truth in the futurist perspective. Um, And I think all of these contribute to uh, a proper understanding of prophetic literature, in my opinion. Now, I believe in uh, first excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the second coming of Christ is so clear because of the judgments that's mentioned there. And later on in chapter 2, the second coming is very clear in my mind because Christ comes and He will destroy the man of lawlessness. That I think the second coming is primarily in view in this particular passage. Um, but again, I think the man of lawlessness can have multiple fulfillments. But uh, I'm going to present to you what I think is the right view. And this is primarily something that still awaits us. Uh, the final revelation of the man of lawlessness is still in the future. So let's begin uh, by looking at this. Uh, again, verse 3, Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come, i.e. the day of the Lord, the second coming, when the church is gathered to be with Christ, will not occur until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So notice this is an individual. 
I don't think it's an institution. He's called the man of lawlessness, which is probably identifying a, a, an individual person who will fulfill this final climatic role of this description. And notice he's referred to as the man of lawlessness. And uh, lawlessness here describes his nature. In the Bible, there are other similar expressions like the man of violence or the man of bloodshed. So it describes his nature. A man of violence is one who does violence. A man of bloodshed is a murderer. A man of lawlessness is committed in his very character to promoting lawlessness. He refuses to be ruled by God. He rejects God's law, Christ's gospel, biblical morality, and rules according to his own laws. He will promote and incite and encourage lawlessness, which is sin. Remember 1 John 3, 4 says that lawlessness is sin. Sin is lawlessness. And so at heart, he's an antinomian. This particular individual will be against the law of God. So he's anti-law. Now this will have its uh, ramifications probably in different spheres of life. Certainly he'll be a man of lawlessness regarding morality. He'll promote immorality, sexual perversion, gay marriage, All this gender confusion that's going on today is all consistent with someone that's promoting lawlessness in the moral realm. If you drop down and look, for example, at verse 7, Paul says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So it's already working even in the first century and it's been working ever since. So the, the, the spirit of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness was taking place even in the first century. So it's something that's always with us. And we see it in our society very prominent, do we not? Also, there will be lawlessness in society. This individual on a global level will promote anarchy, probably rioting, undermine social order, legal rights of people. The rule of law will suffer greatly. He'll probably direct a global machine that will promote lawless values, trample on human rights in the courts, in civil government, in the media, corporations, big tech. They're all going to be united in promoting lawlessness, breaking the law of God, disrupting peace so that they can come in and claim to be the Savior and claim to be the Redeemer. Government does this all the time. But there'll also be an element of lawlessness that he'll seek to bring into and promote within the church. This is connected with the apostasy that we've already seen. He will promote lawlessness, which will ultimately bring about persecution of the church, which will again further the work of the apostasy and rebellion within the church. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And this could, some of this obviously I think can have a first century application, but it's also going to climax in the final uh, generation. But Jesus said, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. 
So the man of lawlessness is committed to promoting lawlessness. And that spirit has always been around. But this individual, this last final individual, is going to promote it. And in such a way that within the church, there'll be an apostasy. Most people's love will grow cold. Why? Because they never were truly believers. We looked at that last week. So he's described first this individual who must occur uh, and be revealed prior to the second coming of Christ. He will be described as a man of lawlessness. Now notice in verse 3, Paul says, and he uses his words carefully, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now that word revealed is used of Jesus Christ in his second coming in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, the very same word. And I think what Paul is indicating in part is this man of lawlessness is going to be a counterfeit Messiah, counterfeit Christ. In some way, he's going to try to imitate Christ and he'll further this apostasy which will be both doctrinal. Within the church, there'll be an undermining of the gospel and also moral. So he's a man of lawlessness, but he'll be revealed because he's going to try to come to the stage and basically take the place of, of Christ in one way or another. So it's interesting that Paul uses the same word for the man of lawlessness. He'll be revealed that he used of Christ in chapter 1 verse 7. Okay, so the second way this individual is described here, he's the son of destruction. Again, this particular description is a, is a Hebraic expression. Son of, if someone's a son of something, it means they're closely identified and associated with something or someone, almost as if you know, they're like a son to a, to a father, to parents. So this son of destruction, he is closely associated with destruction. Again, it describes his nature. Now, we, we can understand this destruction in two ways. Number one, he will bring about destruction. That's one way to understand it. This man who's coming, this man of lawlessness, will be a son of destruction. He'll, be dest he'll bring destruction with him. And this may very well fit with what Jesus was describing in Matthew 24, verse 9. When he says, and they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the church will be persecuted. Many believers in Christ will be put to death, just as they are today. I mean, if you've read anything in Nigeria, you know, there's couple of hundred believers have been slaughtered in Nigeria just within the last week or so. So again, this type of persecution has been going on throughout the age, but it's going to intensify, no doubt, at the end. So the destruction here could be the idea of just the chaos that he ultimately brings and just the, the forcefulness of his reign and rule and primarily the hatred and persecution it will bring against Christ's church as he seeks to replace Christ himself 
with his own. But there's another way to interpret this phrase, the son of destruction, and that is he's doomed to destruction. He's doomed to be slaughtered by Christ when he comes back. This is what Paul will later say in verse 8 when he says, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So when Christ comes back, he's going to slay this Antichrist, this final Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. Christ will destroy him and throw him into the lake of fire will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he will be destroyed. So he probably both ideas would be appropriate. This individual is going to bring destruction, primarily in trying to destroy the church, but he'll also be destroyed himself by Christ when he comes back at his second coming. And it's also very interesting that... Um, the Lord Jesus has used this exact phrase, son of destruction, for somebody else. Does anybody remember who the Lord Jesus called the son of destruction? Judas. So in some way, the Apostle Paul, no doubt mindful of John chapter 17, verse 12, where Jesus said of His true disciples, I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of destruction so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. So it may also, by Paul using the very same phrase that Jesus used for Judas, may give us some idea of the nature of this man. He's like an apostate traitor like Judas was. Or in some way he may be similar in, in, in that capacity possibly. Okay, well, let's move on now to verse 4. This is where it really gets interesting. So this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, that Christ will destroy at His second coming, in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself, as being God. So now we find that he is described with this self-exaltation to put himself in the place of God. To be worshipped as God. Now notice the first thing it says, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So not only does he oppose other religions but he exalts himself over them. So he's not only opposing opposition, the, these other religions that are out there, he is, he is claiming to be the one and only true religious head to be really God himself. So this guy is not suffering from low self-esteem, right? Uh, he is claiming to be God himself. He, he, he is, his mind is full of this, this ego, this megalomaniac, this insanity ego that he's actually wanting to be worshipped as God. There's really 
nothing new about that either historically, right? You know, a lot of the Roman Caesars demanded that they would be worshipped as God. The uh, president of North Korea, his people have to worship him as God. He's deified in their minds. So again, these are things that have sadly been true of history but this guy is going to be he's going to he's going to he's going to be the worst form of it so he's claiming himself to be god he's displaying himself as god and this these two verbs he opposes and exalts are in the present tense which just means it's an ongoing continuing attitude that he has he's going to be a dictator a tyrant but he also lusts for power and worship so again, he's opposing Christ, he's opposing the gospel, he's opposing the church, and he claims to be the true God. He wants people to worship. He claims to be the only way to whatever it is he thinks he can give people. <clears throat> he's a one, <clears throat> one and only uh, God to be worshipped. Now this is interesting <clears throat> because the Apostle Paul seems to be borrowing from Daniel chapter 11 says, then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Now, again, Paul is borrowing almost exactly that same language. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous, monstrous things against the God of gods. That's the God of the Bible. In chapter 7, he'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. That's where he's persecuting the church. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. He's going to alter the law. That's why he's the man of lawlessness. Because he's promoting lawlessness. He's going to make changes in the law and conform it to his will and his purpose. Something else we learn about this man is in verse 9. If you drop down there also. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So this is part of how he's going to deceive people. This is how he's going to bring about the apostasy. Many people will follow him because of the power, signs, and false wonders. But notice interestingly in verse 9, Paul uses another word that's associated with the second coming of Christ. The word coming. This is parousia. That's the very same word that we've seen already in 2 Thessalonians referred to Christ's coming. So again, Paul is kind of indicating that this particular individual is going to be a false Christ. He's going to claim to be uh, Christ, the Lord. But we also see that he is basically Satan-possessed. He's coming in accord with the activity of Satan. So he is aligned with Satan in his activity. He is basically the devil's puppet man, as I would understand it. He wants to be worshipped, so he's intoxicated and under the control of Satan. And remember, as, as Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to worship Him and failed... This Satan-inspired man will also be tempting the church to do the same 
And sadly, the false believers within the church will, uh, will succumb. And he'll, he will succeed uh, in, that, in that way to some degree. This is the very nature of Satan, we know. If you think of Isaiah 14, although it speaks of an earthly king, there's probably, he's probably being presented as a type of Satan and his fall from heaven. But in that Isaiah chapter 14, this individual says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. And, and that's, that's basically what Satan was guilty of. That's why he was cast out of heaven. So here's a man who's basically controlled and dominated by Satan. He's going to have the same desire to be worshipped. So going back to verse 4, so he's opposing and exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He wants to be worshipped. He, he is going to present himself as being God. But then it goes on to say, so he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now he takes his seat in the temple of God is a very interesting uh, description of what this man supposedly will do. So how do we interpret that he will take his seat in the temple of God? Well, one of the... uh, interpretations mainly among dispensationalists is that this is a rebuilt physical temple. So at some point, the temple, the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt and then this final Antichrist will take his seat in that temple and then Christ will come back and slay him by the word of his mouth. Now, there's problems with that particular view and in my mind. One of them is a political problem because right in that place where the temple was is now the Dome of the Rock Shrine. It was built in the 7th century A.D. and a Muslim mosque nearby, just right south. So to build a temple, you're going to have to tear down the Dome of the Rock and probably the mosque that's very close to it. And if you did that, that's going to bring in an all-out war. I mean, you talk about what's going on over there now, that would be nothing if, if, if the uh, Jewish nation tried to tear down the Dome of the Rock and, the, and that mosque in order to build a temple. Uh, this, is, this is going to create a, a war of wars. Uh, there's actually no political will among the Jews to even want to do that now, except for a very small minority of Orthodox Jews. Uh, what I, my reading has told me that the majority of Jews do not want to do that because they don't want the war that it would certainly bring about. If you remove the Dome of the Rock, and you can't build the temple in any other place, what authority do you have It had to only come from the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to come after it's built, right? So most Jews, from my understanding, they they really don't even have much of a messianic uh, outlook anyway. They've so departed from even Old Testament Judaism that they're really quite content with the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque. 
So before you could ever have those things torn down and rebuild another temple, Jewish temple, you're going to have to have a massive change of attitude within uh, the existing Jews over there. Uh, basically, most of them just want to live their life. Uh, and they're not interested in trying to create a World War III with the Muslim nations by tearing down their sacred... This, this is the third most sacred place in, in all of uh, Islam, is there on, on the Temple Mount. So there's political problems with this. I mean, that's, it, it's, it would have to take a long time to get to that place, I would think. Of course, things can change very quickly, we know. But even more important are the theological problems with rebuilding a Jewish temple. Uh, most of those who do ascribe to that particular view align this future Jewish temple with the temple prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. In that passage in Ezekiel 40 through 48, it is presented that the temple is rebuilt or built. The Levitical priesthood is reinstated. Animal sacrifices for an atonement of sin are being offered on the altar. And uh, that's obviously a problem. If you're going to rebuild a temple, any temple, why do you rebuild any temple? To, To have animal sacrifices. And it clearly says that uh, there will be sin offerings 14 times in that passage of Ezekiel. It mentions sin offerings. Five times those offerings are for an atonement for Israel. So there's problems there. Some of the problems are, in my mind, is that when you read that passage, now now let me back up. The, uh, The dispensational response is that, well, those sacrifices are for a memorial they look back to uh, Christ's death on the cross so they're just memorial sacrifices but the problem with that type of response is that's not what the text is saying Uh, if you look at some of the verses in Ezekiel I just have a couple here Chapter 43, verse 22, You shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar. So the sin offering is not just a memorial, it's actually effectual to bring about cleansing. Chapter 45, verse 17, He shall provide the sin offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. The language is not memorial. The language is that these are real sin offerings to make an atonement to cover the sin of the people. So if you're going to rebuild a future temple where there are animal sacrifices, sin offerings to make an atonement for people to cover their sin, then what are you saying about the finished work of Christ on the cross? Since Christ came to fulfill all of those sacrifices and to fulfill the whole meaning and purpose of the temple, why are you going to, after He has come and fulfilled it, revert back to rebuild the shadows of an old covenant temple with old covenant sacrifices to make atonement in the old covenant? Why would you ever do that? I I find that a, a, a problem in my mind. 
Um, Christ has already given us a memorial for His death. What is that memorial? It's the Lord's Supper. So now you're going to do away with that. And by the way, he, He tied the Lord's Supper to the New Covenant. So why are you going to do away with this and try to revert back to animal sacrifices? It just, um, there's a problem there. The author of Hebrews, I think, stated this clearly. Said, referring to Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So once that has happened, if you rebuild a physical temple and have animal sacrifices to make an atonement for God's people, then you're denying Christ's finished work on the cross. So that's a problem to me. Plus, the author of Hebrews was very clear that when Jeremiah promised and prophesied of a coming new covenant, he made the first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That temple and those sacrifices were obsolete when the new covenant was prophesied. Once Christ came, it's time for them to disappear. And I think that's disappear forever. I don't think uh, it's God's plan to ever rebuild that temple because that temple pointed forward to Christ. When Christ came, the meaning, the purpose, the function of the temple has been fulfilled. It's now obsolete and it's ready to disappear, to be swept away off the scene of history. And that was, I think, God's intended point when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that veil in front of the Holy of Holies? It was torn in two from top to bottom. Who did that? God. Why did God do that? It's ready to disappear. God has already torn it. He's saying this is no longer the way. This temple, this priesthood has all been replaced by Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. So once the reality has come, why would you go back into the shadows that have already been fulfilled? So these are problems to me with any uh, rebuilding of a physical temple uh, over in Jerusalem. So then what does it mean that this man of lawlessness, this uh, son of destruction, is going to take his seat in the temple of God. So what temple is it? Well, I think we should follow the words of uh, not only what God told David, but the words of Jesus Himself, and then the Apostle Paul in other passages. Let me explain. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the great Davidic covenant. This is a covenant that God made with David. And notice this particular covenant has a dual fulfillment with Solomon, but also in Jesus Christ. So notice what it says. When your days are complete, we're talking to David and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now Solomon did that on a physical level. He built the house. He built the temple. He also sat on the throne of David, but he didn't sit on the throne of that kingdom forever. So this prophecy has a near fulfillment in Solomon, but a future more glorious fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So Christ, when He comes, He will build a house for My name. Not a physical house, physical temple, but a spiritual one. And he will, God will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. So Christ is also referred to. So Christ is going to build a temple. He's also going to sit on an everlasting throne. So what is that temple Christ is going to build? Well, let's listen to His own words. In John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, referring to the physical temple in existence there. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. See, Christ is the new covenant temple. What is a temple? It's a place where God dwells. Well, in the incarnation, you have the perfect, most glorious temple of all. You have God the Son joined to a human nature. So His body, His physical body, now becomes in a sense the new covenant temple. So He is replacing the old covenant temple. So Jesus is now saying, I am the temple. Now if you think about this, I think it's a pretty profound statement that we have to understand, but it helps us to interpret, I think, where, where Paul is going with this. Because that old covenant temple with the veil torn has now been removed from uh, the worship of God The temple has now been desecrated by God Himself. He tore the curtain. So now that temple is Ichabod. The glory has departed forever. And now the perfect temple, all that the temple pointed forward to, has now arrived in Jesus Christ. And so now He becomes the new covenant temple of God. But not only is Jesus Christ Himself that temple but all those who are in Christ and united with Christ by faith also become the new covenant temple of God. And this is what Paul emphasizes in his other, his other writings. Now, now this is interesting because Galatians 3, Paul says that the Abrahamic covenant was given to him and his seed, to Abraham, And then he identifies that Jesus Christ is that seed. So all the Abrahamic covenant, the land promises, uh, I'll make you a great nation, all that is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And those united with Christ share in that fulfillment. So that's why in Galatians, Paul can say to the church, who are the sons of Abraham? In Galatians 3 verse 7. And Paul says, it's not based upon your genealogical descent anymore. 
Do you have faith in Christ? If you do that, makes you a son of Abraham. And then in verse 29 of Galatians 3, you're also an heir of Abraham. Now that's being fulfilled in the church. So believers today are the true sons of Abraham. We're the heirs of Abraham. So we inherit all those promises. Land promises, it's the church is going to inherit that. Those land promises in the Old Testament are always described as an everlasting possession anyway, which is going to be fulfilled on the new earth. But we are the true new covenant Israel because we are in Christ. So let's go back to this temple idea. Look uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 16. He says to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that you're a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's calling the church the temple of God. Verse 17, If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. So it's pretty clear Paul is now calling the church the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God three times in these two verses. In chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So here he refers to the to the, to the body of a believer as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, the temple of God. Fulfilled in us. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So again, we are the temple of God. We're the temple of the living God. Who? The church. That's what Paul is teaching here. What's also interesting is see all these, this, uh, this last part of verse 16 that's all in capital letters. Those are all quotations from the Old Testament. Exodus, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And in all of those Old Testament phrases and references... It it deals with the temple where God dwells in Old Covenant Israel. Paul now sees that fulfilled in the church. Because now he's quoting those verses, applying them to the New Covenant church. It's phenomenal. Peter does the very same thing in 1 Peter 2.9. Peter quotes phrases that refer to Old Covenant Israel and applies them to the New Covenant church. 1 Peter 2.9, he describes the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And all this is now being fulfilled in the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says of the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing to a holy temple in the Lord. That's the church. That's us. So the new covenant temple is not a physical building anymore. It's Christ and those who are united to Him by faith. We become that holy temple. So if you count them up, these verses I've just gone over, Seven times Paul says in effect that the church is the temple of God. 
He never uses that temple of God expression for a physical Jewish temple. He doesn't. Not once. Every time he mentions a temple of God or the temple of the, of the Lord or of the living God or however he describes it, it's always of the church. So, if you go back to verse 4, this individual whom Christ will destroy when He comes, will oppose and exalt Himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that He takes His seat in the temple of God. So He, has, he will infiltrate the church. He'll take the position of authority and power. And this will help to facilitate the great apostasy as people believe and are persuaded by His signs and wonders and follow, and follow Him, and they believe His false gospel and false theology and immorality, and they fall away from Christ and they abandon Him. I think that's the best way to interpret this. It's a view that's been held throughout the, the church age for many, many, many centuries. So this lawless man of destruction wants to destroy the church. And he'll come in and because of he's, him being linked with Satan and because of there being miraculous signs and everything else, many people will follow suit and believe him and follow him and he'll lead them down the broad way to destruction. Sadly, many within the church will abandon their faith. They'll reject the Gospel. They'll reject Jesus Christ because they'll follow the deceptive lives of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, who in some way is going to take his seat in the temple of God, in the church, to lead about a a great apostasy. Because nowhere else does Peter, uh, excuse me, does Paul use the phrase temple of God and refer to a physical temple. So in conclusion, Satan is going to do everything within his power to turn away people from Christ. So how do we stand against this apostasy and the influences of this man of lawlessness? I don't know when he's going to appear. I have no idea. But these elements are already at work in the world and in the church. So how do we stand against it Well, we stand against it by standing on the truth. By standing on the Gospel. We affirm the Gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives. And we show by our love, not only for one another, but for the lost people, our love for them by telling them the truth. That there is only one way to salvation. There's only one way to heaven. And all other religions are are lies. There are satanic counterfeits offering people heaven all the wrong way. Leading people down that broad way of destruction. So what the church needs to do is to stand upon the foundation of the truth of God's Word to the best that the Lord enables us. To celebrate and cling to the truths of the Gospel that Jesus and only Jesus can save a sinner from their sins and give them the hope of heaven. No one else can. And as we do that, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, we will stand in the Gospel of Jesus Christ 
And whatever comes our way, by God's faithfulness to us, He'll help us to stand. If we do not do that, then we are vulnerable to the satanic lies, the powerful, deceptive, supernatural ministry of this individual that's going to lead many people astray. And the only way we can guard our hearts and minds against it is to stay in the Word of God, to stay uh, close to Christ, to be sound in our doctrine, our understanding of the Gospel, and to cling to Christ as the only way of salvation. Some religions say Jesus is a prophet. Well, He's more than a prophet. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Now, if that's not true, He's not a prophet, He's a liar. He's a false prophet. But we believe He's the truth. In Acts 4, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He's the one who shed His blood to pay the penalty for our sins. No one else has done that for you but Jesus Christ. So now it's our great privilege to celebrate the only memorial that Jesus has given for His death on the cross, and that's take of the Lord's Supper.